We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. First pick in the 1991 NBA draft, the Charlotte Hornets select Larry Johnson from University I'm not supposed of to be here, man. A lot of people from where I'm from, so don't, don't make it. Charlotte! We're back! All right. Welcome to another BuzzBeat, a Charlotte Hornets podcast. This is Richie, and I'm joined by Lee and Brian for another episode. This is a post-season episode as the Hornets have finished their 82-game schedule with a record of 43-39 and 39 and have a chance to make the playoffs uh, with this NBA's play-in tournament. On today's episode, we will quickly recap Sunday's game versus the Wizards chat about the news surrounding Gordon Hayward's injury, and then the majority of the episode is going to be previewing the game against the Hawks and how we think they'll fare down in Atlanta. Before we get into our conversation, we'd love for you guys to support us with a rating and review on Apple Podcast or Spotify. It means more than you think, and we'll definitely read the best ones on air. So we've got Lee on the podcast today. How's it going, Lee? You've been a very busy man. You got to let the listeners know where you've been. Oh man. Well, I, I, I think long story short, I started, a, I started a new gig and clearly I'm just, uh, n- not a great time, uh, time manager. So, uh, <laughs> I think that's the moral of the story is, um, the, the new gig, Took a little bit more of my attention than I, than I anticipated, but I, I tell you what, it is glad to be. Uh, it is good to be back in front of the mic, and uh, and perfect timing, right? Right before the Hornets play an elimination play-in game, and uh, obviously now I'll get to get to start jumping into um, you know when we do our kind of traditional off-season stuff too. Although hopefully we're not getting to that quite yet. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Brian, how's it going with you? Things are good. Um, I really like this time of the year. Uh, it's like a, I like. I think this is a fun part of the basketball calendar. Um, for me, uh, it's a bummer to see the college season end, but it was a really fun season, fun tournament, and then I really enjoy this time of the year where you're looking now at a lot of like analyzing the transfer portal in college hoops, draft decisions, getting ready for the draft in playoff basketball. So there's just like sort of like less live game inventory to keep up with and, but still lots of intrigue. And, um, and it's nice to have a meeting at least for a few more days, probably the, the Hornets playing some, some games with stakes, uh, you know, albeit not too high, but no, I'm doing well. Let, let's first get to this game against Washington. Uh, the Hornets had a chance to move up in the standings to better their, I guess, positioning when it comes to this play in tournament. But as we all knew uh, we did not get any help from the other teams. The Nets, the Cavs, and the Hawks all won on Sunday. Uh, the Hornets did end up winning 124-108. Uh, we won't spend too much time on this game. I know that Lee was just kind of catching the highlights of this. Uh, the Hornets had another slow start to this game, and that's becoming a trend that hopefully doesn't carry over to Wednesday's game. And I think the biggest culprit of that were the sloppy turnovers. And in terms of like a team perspective, it just felt like this team, especially coming out, like you would think they would come out with a little bit more urgency. They were a little bit lackadaisical on both ends of the court. I think in the back of the minds, they knew that they could probably just turn it on and beat the Wizards. 
I thought LaMelo Ball probably was the most consistent player for this team from quarter one to quarter four. He did have a slow start with the turnovers, like I mentioned prior. Uh, but the biggest thing for him, and, and it's been a recent trend, it's not necessarily just in this Wizards game, he's been hitting his three-point shot, and that's going to go a long way for him. Uh, he also had a couple of nice driving buckets early in the game. He was one assist shy from a triple-double, just a well-rounded game from LaMelo. But I thought what was pretty cool was that there were two quarters, the third quarter and the fourth quarter, where two players just kind of took over. Like Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas has just been like a godsend for this Hornets team. And he midway through the third quarter, third quarter was inserted. And he was really just inserted to me. I, I thought he was inserted because LaMelo had to be taken out because he had a cut on his eye. And Thomas had 14 points in that final like four minutes. And it was just a variety of ways that he could score. And then Rozier, who's also had slow starts recently, Hopefully that that turns around for Wednesday. He also killed it in the fourth quarter. So both of these players were perfect from the field. I, Isaiah in the third quarter, Rozier in the fourth quarter. And uh, it's nice to see Rozier hit those threes, but I, we wish that it would come a little bit earlier. But I don't really have much from this game just because I knew that the Hornets were pretty much going to win this game. It was a matter of fact of uh, whether or not the Nets, the Cavs, or the Hawks would lose. And uh, like I mentioned, the Hornets did not get any help in that aspect. Yeah. I mean, Washington really just running the clock out, mostly development minutes for them. Yeah. Um, shout out Corey Kispert, who's played well. I think the stretch run of the season here, I thought he had a nice game. <clears throat> just move without the ball, had a couple really nice, like, cut finishes, including one where it looked like he was going to run off, like, stack, weak side staggers for Washington. Lamella was chasing him, and then he, he cut back door. Then he had another sort of like UCLA cut in uh, like secondary transition action for layup. That was impressive. But you're right. I think Charlotte kind of knew they could flip the switch when they needed to. LaMelo, what a stat line. Six threes, 10 boards, nine assists, 24, pump, 24 points. He had one like hit ahead pass and transition to Montrez Harrell for a dunk. That was like, it wasn't even like the most accurate pass, but just like Harrell took off, rim run up the court, like ahead of the pack. And I mean, Washington was like, again, it was on the break, but Washington kind of had like, you know, three and a half, four defenders set up with Gafford, like trying to sprint back and get ahead of Harold. I thought Harold and Gafford had a little like uh, mono mono former teammates going at one another uh, uh, action in this game, which, which added a, a little bit of zest to it, which was fun. I would also highlight J- Jalen McDaniels, like, Boy, that was a fun performance from him. Um, a couple highlight defensive plays, 14 points, two threes, six boards, two assists. The block he had on Gafford was absolutely nasty. Where like he was middle ball screen, he switched on the Gafford. But Gafford kind of had like an inside step, so he spun, sealed, tried to finish at the rim, and McDaniels just got him from behind. And like, man, if you can get – like I know Daniel Gafford is not – he's not he's not Jaron Jackson Jr., like Rudy Gobert, but that dude can block a shot and he can finish at the rim. And uh, I thought that was really impressive. And I know PJ Washington, not like the most, not like his best game, you know, 25 minutes, four, four shooting, nine points, four fouls. The dunk he had on the short roll over the top of Gafford was nasty. And was like, that said that to me, I know Charlotte didn't get out to a great start, but that to me kind of like set the tone for them. Like we're here. And I think it just speaks to in general, uh, we've talked about it on the pod. We've talked about it on Spaces. I've talked about it on various radio hits. I've gone on the FNC pregame show and talked about this with, with T-Bone and Kyle, too. But just, like, aggressive PJ the last couple of weeks or months or so now has been really awesome, either in the short roll or, you know, inverted pick and rolls or him attacking closeouts. I think there's been a lot of good stuff. That dunk over Gafford came out of the uh, the short roll. So, um, checked a lot of boxes to what you wanted to see from Charlotte um, in this game. And really, like, when that backcourt, when Ball and Rozier is going to get you 49 points on 34 shots, pretty good. So, yeah, nice, a nice statement win. Unfortunately, it, it did basically nothing for them in terms of seeding. So that's a little disappointing. But uh, I thought it was still a solid win to round out the season against a, a Washington team that, again, mostly development guys, but was still trying. Like, Avia was trying. Kispert was trying. Hachimura trying. Uh, Sadoransky, I thought, played pretty well in that game, too. So I thought it was, like, not a bad 
game to sort of like end the season on because it was a solid win. And it wasn't like they got to just like steamroll over Oklahoma City with like, you know, by hitting the snooze button and then having to get ready to go on the road and play Atlanta, you know. So I thought it helped out a little bit there, maybe. My only two cents um, on this one are I agree with Brian. I think I think sometimes people don't realize that, like, yes, sometimes these teams have packed it in for the season, but it's actually like a little, I don't know if counterintuitive is the right word, but because you are playing all these developmental guys, that actually means those guys are trying really hard because this is like their moment and this is their chance to kind of build momentum into the next season or hopefully get invited, you know, back to the team in some capacity or even as like a tryout for the next team that they may get invited to in some capacity. So I thought that was a good point by BG. It's, it's, it's obviously a, a less talented caliber of a roster than they would be putting on the floor with their veterans. But like it was still a team that was very much uh, deliberately trying to win the game. My only other point is, uh, which was one of Richie's first points about Isaiah Thomas. And that it's just kind of hilarious that another minuscule tiny guard has been like kind of exactly what this Hornets offense is needed and how the like time is just a flat circle essentially. <laughs> And Lee, too, you're also auditioning for next year. So this is like your last like regular season <laughs> podcast. So you better, yeah, you better come strong. I got to tape out there in this one. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, good point, good point. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, so let's transition to the Gordon Hayward news and the implications of that before we start talking about the Atlanta Hawks game. It was announced on Sunday that Hayward will be out for the play-in tournament and effectively the rest of the season due to some discomfort in his left foot. He had missed, I think, like 20-plus games, and then he came back for one game, and then that was against the Sixers, I believe, and he has missed every game since then. And there's a lot of directions where this convo can go, but is the simplest answer that he was just, like, rushed back by the team? Like, is that really what happened here, or did they actually think that he was ready to go against the Sixers and this was just something that was kind of unexpected? Because I think if the Hornets were kind of planning this right, they wanted to kind of ramp up his conditioning and his play as it led into the play. And instead of having him play against, you know, Washington and like try to give him extra rest that way. But I do wonder if they knew there was a bigger risk than maybe they were letting on. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Like, was it just simply that they didn't know in terms of like a 48 minute game, what the effect was going to have on his body? Or do you think that they knew there was some kind of risk involved? Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on Hayward in general, but on this question, this hypothetical specifically, I would just say it's hard to know until we get more information, which I don't think we're going to get. We Richie, you and I talked about this. I think I talked about this with Spencer in the lead up to it. I know I, on a couple of radio hits I did, this was a conversation of just like no one knew Gordon was coming back until it was like the day before. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were so quiet about what his timeline was, how he was progressing. I mean, there was basically nothing. There was like one whisper in the middle of him being out. 
that he was maybe going to start ramping up and practicing again. But then there was, you heard nothing after that until the Hornets PR tweet came out that said Gordon is probable for tomorrow against Philadelphia. And um, so who knows? I mean, it's tough to know if they, if they, if they did rush him back or if it got to the point where they said, if it's going to happen, we've got to do it now. Right. Um, because we need some sort of buildup. We need some sort of data and feedback on how your body is take, is going to, is uh, Gordon's body is going to handle uh, coming back from the injury ahead of, you know, a playoff game or playing game or whatever. Impossible to know. You know, it just, it just is. I mean, you can, again, you can read into it however you want to. All I know is like, it's a, uh, it, it is a bummer. And, and I mean, we can talk more about Gordon. Yeah. I just, until I get more information, uh, you, you know, you can read into it. I think however you want and no one can tell you you're wrong. <laughs> if you believe, you believe they rushed him back again, there's no way to know for certain. And, or if you think that they were, they, they really did in fact take their time and they were just going to give it a shot because this window was open just before the regular season was going to end. Uh, that's ten, that tends to be what I think it was going to. That, that, uh, that's yeah. sort of where I land, to be honest with you. It's hard to simulate an actual game, like drills yeah. and proper drills and stuff like that. That doesn't necessarily simulate an actual game. Exactly. And so they thought, you know, maybe they mapped it out where well, we can play him. We'll get him, you know, a couple rest games, you know, no back-to-backs, and we'll be able to, you know, you know get him, you know, three or four games for the regular season. Right. And, you know, maybe maybe that way. So again, obviously would want him back, but I don't think it, it's anything where they're like there there would be any sort of like push, especially knowing the especially like knowing the situation with his contract, you know, uh, as far as years and money go for Gordon. So that would be my thought. But look, if, if you're out there and you think it, he was rushed back for some reason, I mean, there has been a tr- there has been a history of. Um, Maybe not this front office in Charlotte, but like remember Nick Batum coming back from the UCL injury pretty early on a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to say there was a thing where Mike Moore NKG came back pretty early from an injury, and maybe that didn't. So it's like there is some track record here. Um, but my guess would be that that's not what happened with Gordon. But um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd also have to think that there's some kind of player input as well. Like it's not just the training staff, right? Like you can't just, you can't just For say, sure. okay, Gordon, you're playing tonight. I don't care what you yeah, say. Exactly. Well, especially, especially a guy who's a veteran like right. Gordon, especially a guy who has the, the injury history of Gordon. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like that's a whole nother layer to all this. I, I think just from like a higher level viewpoint, you know, you start to look and this isn't like breaking news by any means, but like, you really got to go back to his all-star season. You know, that's, that's 16, 17 in Utah where he, you know, he was an all-star and he played 73 games. He did play 72 games in 18, 19 in Boston, but he also got hurt late in that year too. Mm -hmm. Of course he had, you know, he had the year in Boston where he broke his leg. And now, you know, we're looking at, this will be his third straight season of not hitting 60 games. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like I said, like I'm not breaking any news here. It's just kind of like this, the the sober reminder that it's possible that Gordon Hayward's body is just incapable of playing over 55 games in the NBA season, like period, you know, full yeah. stop. Like that just might be the deal. So, and I am <laughs> the farthest thing from a like sports medicine uh, medical professional. I just wonder – and this is literally nothing but speculation, but that's what we do on podcasts, right? Like at, at, at one, at some point, do you put him on, on some sort of like very measured program where, you know, you, you shoot for 50 games and in hopes that he can be available at the end of the year, I don't know what that looks like. And obviously yeah. there are massive trade-offs there from like a chemistry standpoint and from a rhythm standpoint and from a rotation standpoint. So it's a, the, a far cry from like an actual solution. It's just, that's where my thoughts go. And that's kind of like the zoomed out picture of what Gordon Hayward's health is now. I think that's a good point too, because one of the things I was sort of interested on seeing, like if, and when this is, if you had talked to me a month ago or three weeks ago, I was sort of interested on a, the return of Hayward because Charlotte kind of needs him. If they're going to be at their best on offense, 
but I thought it was going to be interesting to see, well, can you, could you now sell Gordon Hayward on the, the bench role? Right. And I know that's not like, that's not necessarily the role you want for the guy that's making $30 million a year. And you, you've paid to be, you know, like uh, you're one of your best players, but just like to this point like this, this hypothetical program that Lee is talking about, maybe the way to sort of get there with Gordon whether it be in Charlotte or somewhere else is like, as a, like you try to have him play X, the goal is to play 70 games a season or whatever, but to say, we're going to dial your minutes back to 25 minutes per game or whatever, you know what I mean? Or 24. And we're going to dial your usage back from the mid twenties to the high teens or low twenties or whatever. And we're going to have you come off the bench, you know, and like that, that's the route to do it. And I don't know, ego chemistry, probably not what you want. And like, just probably not what you want, not like feasible from a team building and like roster construction standpoint. But I was curious to see if, if he came back and played pretty well coming off the bench. Like I kind of wanted to see what Hayward as like the leader of the bench lineups looked like, like Hayward and Harrell, uh, being the guys to do that, um, it may be like less, you know, less, less Kelly Oubre. <laughs> um, that, that maybe would have been a, a, a nice thing too, but it, it, that's not happening. And maybe that can be in the, the cards for next season. If, if Hayward has not moved this off season, which, uh, you know, again, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. But look, when you see Mark Stein float, the Hornets as a team that are interested in Russell Westbrook, it's like, well, the only way Charlotte's getting to a salary match in that type of deal is Hayward. is uh, is having and, and like I'll be honest with you on that kind of transaction. I don't know which way the value shifts. Like I don't know who has to like move the assets out, like like draft picks or young players or whatever, to like swing that deal. I genuinely don't know because you know? Hayward has the years right. Like so that that that's where the downfall is, and then Westbrook's right. coming off the year that he's coming right. off of. So who knows? Well, and like, and like Hayward is still like a like Hayward when healthy is like good is a is one hundred percent a good basketball player and is a guy that you can play with other good players because like he doesn't really need the ball a lot because he can shoot and he can plat, pass and screen and that type of stuff. So theoretically, he would like look pretty good if healthy next to LeBron, right? You know, and then this again, we're way in the weeds here, but. I, I don't know. But anyways, that's just something something to consider with Hayward going forward. But you feel bad for him because he's played, what, 49 and 44 games now for Charlotte in two seasons. Like, you know, he's basically missed, uh, you know, what, a little under half the time that he could have been on the court for the Hornets. That's um, that's tough, and it's got to be frustrating for Gordon. And um, from, like, an actual on-court basketball standpoint, he was a good fit and a good player when he could play. Like you can't, I just don't think you can deny that. Um, yeah, that that's always know. been my argument. Like, I feel like I've been the biggest backer of Gordon Hayward on this podcast, but probably because I've been overly optimistic that he can make 55, 60 games in a season. So uh, silly me for thinking that was going to be the case, but I do yeah. think that he's Charlotte's, you know, best three level scorer. I believe he's an underrated passer. He's a connector. Yeah. He's a veteran presence. Like he, he gets, you know, the, the best out of his teammates. I think also too, like in a, in a style where Borrego likes to push the pace and for his athleticism and age, I still feel like he's a good player in transition and just overall makes a, a positive impact on the team. But I guess where I'm reevaluating my take on Hayward is just maybe his injuries being a bigger part than I initially thought, which is kind of crazy to think about. Like that's always something that you have to think about with Hayward, but yeah, I mean, he is overpaid. Uh, I think I'd be okay with the the payment in his contract if he was guaranteed to play 55, 60 games in a season. I, I do yeah. think that there needs to be some salary fillers and and, and, and filling up the, the books there. But to your point, Brian, I'm not sure how workable it is over the offseason, but I'm sure the thought of maybe moving on from Hayward, we can kind of rehash this later, but I, I think it's probably crossed Cupcheck's mind a little bit more than maybe, you know, four months ago, five months ago, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how I feel. I know, Brian, you said that you re-listened to the episode when we first acquired. I don't know yeah. if I want to go back and listen to that one. It, it was it was funny for a couple of reasons. One, 
we what we make fun of Detroit for signing 19 centers like the first day of 2020 free agency, including Mason Plumley. So we're like we like laugh at them for that. And now obviously Mason Plumley starting at center for the Charlotte Hornets. We also talk about we talk a lot about how they were going to have to probably because at the time there was still a chance there was going to be that sign in trade right with Boston. Not necessarily that like the Hornets were definitely going to stretch Nick Batum. Like when they when they agreed to term the terms of the contract with Gordon Hayward, it was not yet determined what that was going to like that they were going to have to stretch Batum. So talk about that. We talk about um, how we talk about traded player exceptions and how Golden State used theirs uh, <laughs> on Kelly Oubre, <laughs> who like is now on the Hornets too. So I don't know there were some moments that were hitting like a little too close to home. Yeah on it, but I don't know. Like, I, I mean, to be getting too much, like, again, I, I stick by it because like w- what my analysis of that deal was, which was, I wouldn't have done it if it was Charlotte. It definitely like short circuited parts of like maybe a deeper rebuild around the mellow while at the same time, sort of like opening up a window to be more competitive in like the mellows rookie season or on his rookie contract. I don't think that's like the best way of harvesting that cap space necessarily, I, I prefer to go the route of being the team that's taking on taking on salary to acquire draft assets and to, to get picks and young players, et cetera. Um, they didn't go that route. And I can kind of understand it because it was a roster that just like needed good players. And Gordon Hayward went healthy. Richie said it. he's a three-level score, four-level score. He can pass from every level. He can screen for Lamelo and get switches. He would be really helpful against Atlanta this week. That's the guy that, that Charlotte has used to punish Trey Young, yeah. like in like two man pick and roll, pick and pop actions with Lamelo. Um, so they could really use him in that capacity, and that was one of the things I really liked. Like my biggest thing for acquiring Gordon Hayward was that I thought it was going to be helpful for Lamelo's development for a variety of reasons, including having like a bigger wing that could come in, absorb tough defensive assignments, like take the top perimeter defender from the opponent, give LaMelo a guy to work on two-man actions with, give him another passer. You know, we're seeing LaMelo obviously play on the basketball more this season, but but going into his rookie year thinking like, well, maybe some sort of role where he's on the ball a lot, but also off it a fair amount, like that's going to, that's going to really help. And at the time he still had Devontae and, Malik Monk and Terry Rozier. So it was like, wow, they've got all these guys that can handle the ball. This is, this is really cool. Again, I, I wouldn't have done it. And again, I stand, I've always said that, but I can kind of understand it from like a just on court point of view, even if that ultimately was going to maybe lower uh, your like long-term ceiling to a certain extent, because you were going to make yourself, be a team that wasn't going to completely bottom out and like contend for a top four lottery pick, you know, and maybe go out and try to get Evan Mobley. It is what it is. Like it's a sunk cost now. So you got to figure out either like what Lee said, which is the plan for how you want to go forward with, with Gordon Hayward, if he's going to be here, or if you are going to exploit trade possibilities, like what, what does that, what does that look like? What would you have to give up to move off that contract? What are you willing to, to yeah. give up, to move on from that contract. And I think Lee will work on that plan and present it to us in a PowerPoint fashion. Okay. Perfect. Yes. I'll have that by end of week. <laughs> All yeah. right. Let's, let's get to the play in game, the nine 10 matchup between the Hornets and the Hawks. I think I mentioned on like a, a previous episode about a month ago where I just figured the Hawks and the Hornets were going to somehow match up in the play in game. The season series for these two, you know, it's split two, two, one game at home, each team won, and one game on the road, each team won. The biggest focal point to me is obviously slowing down Trey Young. I don't think that's anything like monumental to say that. I think he's an awesome offensive player. He can play out of the pick and roll with Capella. Uh, there's different ways that he can exploit the pick and roll. He can pull up from deep. He's got a good floater game. He can hit the roll man. He can hit the lob man. Like He can just really pass the ball around out of that pick and roll. I thought Charlotte did a good job in the last game that they played, and I was in the process of rewatching that one, and there was a concerted effort in terms of how they defended the pick and roll. And I think Young had nine points in that game. I don't think that the Hornets are going to be as lucky to hold Trey Young to single digits, but I think that's the idea. Throw doubles at him, traps at him with the pick and roll. Like That's the right thing to do. Let Hunter, let Herter 
and the others beat you and get the ball out of Young's hands. I, I think Rozier, we talk about his defensive presence and how it's been very iffy in his career, but I thought he did a good job on Young and just kind of like face guarding him. And when he did get rid of the ball, like he made sure that Young didn't get the ball back. Look this up this morning, but when Rozier was defending Young in the last matchup, Trey was one of six in the field, zero of three from deep. And like I said, just a lot of ball denial there and face guarding. So I think it all starts there with Charlotte. If they have any chance to win, obviously you don't have to hold them to nine points, but I do think the effort needs to start at Trey Young. Lee, I'm going to pass it to you and just kind of give me some of your like focal points and keys to success for the Hornets. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you know, regardless of kind of like the geographical rivalry and division rivalry and all that stuff, which is fun and cool. And like the fact that the Hawks and the Hornets are, are both kind of like young, exciting teams, theoretically both kind of on uptrends, even though you could kind of categorize Atlanta as a bit of a disappointing season based on what they did last year. I, I, you know, from a team profile standpoint, it's really interesting because like, you know, Atlanta is a bit better offensively. Uh, The Hornets are a bit better defensively, but they're both top 10 offenses and they're both bottom 10 defenses. Um, So stylistically, there's a lot, you know, in similarities there. What's interesting is the point that you've kind of already alluded to, Richie. The Hornets have actually done a pretty good job on Trey Young throughout kind of the history of their matchups. You know, counterintuitively, because the Hornets obviously are not a great defensive team in general. <laughs> but Borrego and his staff have made it obviously a massive focal point, and they've kind of tried to take the ball out of Trey Young's hand as much as they can, and when he gives it up, not letting him give it back. So, They're going to continue to do that. And the last kind of like major point I was going to make overview point before we dive a little deeper was besides DeAndre Hunter, it doesn't feel like the Hawks have a ton of personnel for Miles Bridges and Hunter's a really good defender and he matches up well. But other than that, like it really feels like this is a game where Miles Bridges could do some major damage and I would love to see it. Yeah. I think that's a great call. There have been times this season when like, uh, Gallinari ended up on Miles Bridges and it's like that should be yeah like Miles should eat all day uh, you know if that's if that's the matchup you get uh, you know I think Collins is the guy that that you know Atlanta can credibly uh, throw at Bridges but if you're getting more of the the, the, the PJ in Miles at the two forward spots well then you know the, how does Atlanta handle those matchups who knows maybe we'll see uh, maybe a Kongu has a role Somehow, the sort of like big picture stuff that I wanted to touch on, a couple things. One, at the top of the list, it's Trey Young. And like, that's such a no-duh thing. But this is the number two offense in basketball. They lead the league in corner three-point percentage. I think they're shooting just under 43% on corner threes. My guess is that's because Trey Young sets up a lot of wide-open corner threes out of the pick-and-roll. And with Trey... I think you got to mix it up. I don't think you can show him the same thing every single time. You definitely can't play drop, but Charlie doesn't really play drop that well, or it's not. I don't think it's something they would be willing to try in a one game, uh, you know, uh, win or go home matchup. But Trey, Trey kills drop, and Charlie doesn't have the point of attack defenders to make that work. So cross that one off the list. You can trap which they've done a lot of trapping out of the pick and roll recently. We've seen LaMelo do a really nice job, like on the backside of some of those actions intercept when, when teams get those four on three and they try to center the ball, the point guard tries to center the ball. LaMelo's gotten pretty darn good at me gambles on these, but LaMelo's gotten to be pretty special at breaking on that, that middle outlet pass, you know what I mean? And creating turnovers um, there. So you're certainly going to see the zone. Like, that's definitely going to be a part of the recipe, too. Um, That's a little risky against Atlanta just because a guy like Clint Capella can get on the glass and really give Charlotte problems. It feels like he does that all the time. But I think you're going to need to trap. I think you're going to need to show zone. I think you've got to show early help. I think you've got to be able to switch, especially on lineups where if they get to any PJ at center. And that's something that they did against Atlanta plenty in the regular season. You know, Atlanta can can take Capella off the court in those situations to play Collins at the five, or they can play a Congo at the five. So they've got some pieces that they can move stuff around and, and get a little more mobile 
and, and a little spacier to, to go at the Hornets. So, you know, that's, that's tough. Uh, they've got, they've got pretty good offensive personnel, but just my thought would be on Trey, you got to show him different stuff every single time and you got to get the ball out of his hands. And I'd rather have Hunter Bogdanovich, you know, Collins. I'd rather have those guys chew you up than have Trey burn the building down. Other big thing, big picture thing would be uh, Charlotte attacking Atlanta's drop defense, um, whether it's Capella, whether it's Collins. Uh, can LaMelo hit his floaters? Can LaMelo hit his runners? Um, you know, is, I, is is Isaiah Thomas, who is, I think, like kind of in the rotation, kind of not in the yeah. rotation. Is, is he a guy that if, if things get sticky in half court, can you use him to get in there and give you a little bit of shot making? Or, or maybe it's Rozier. You know, Charlotte is starting to run a lot of pick and roll through Bridges and through PJ as ball handlers in actions where they're using a guard to set the screen, not Mason Plumley or not Montrez Harrell. You know, can you get to some of those inverted pick and roll looks with whomever Trey Young is guarding? Like, I yep. would do that. I would spam the yep. hell out of that. Like, it, you know, if it's Cody Martin, if it's Jalen McDaniels, whomever it is. Like that guy, take him every trade he's doing and make him guard a million ball screens in this game. You got to just like, he's the guy. Like he, he's, it's so, he's so obvious at the head of the snake there. It's like not even really close, but uh, I think, I think Charlotte being able to punish that drop in a couple of different ways is big. Like along the same lines of like making Trey a target or is I would say like, yes, this is where you miss Gordon Hayward. He can really help you out here. But I kind of like that recently we have seen P.J. Washington turn into more of like a, a weapon as an outside of just like the catch and shoot game. This is something that the three of us plus Spencer talked about before the All-Star break, how it was a little disappointing how P.J. had really settled into basically being like young Marvin Williams, just like a pick and pop bomber. And like that's super useful. But knowing the the array of skills that guy has offensively is a guy that can post up, a guy that can attack closeouts, can drive left, can drive right, can finish on runners, can dunk, can make drop off passes, to you know, can play in the short roll, can finish in the short roll, can pass, and can pass in a bunch of different ways, kick out to the corner for threes, drop offs if he's playing four and Plumley or Harrell are in the dunker spot. I do think it's kind of like I just think in this, in this case, like when Charlotte's in their base lineup, they haven't gotten into the bench yet. I'll be curious to see who Trey Young guards when Charlotte starts the game. I think that's interesting. And then, yeah, I would just say like, I would just say like Miles and PJ, just like go at it. Like have a big, have big effing games, man. I think those guys, I think those guys are just so, so, so key um, in this, in this regard. And I would also say like specifically about Rozier, Charlotte does a lot of good stuff to get him looks coming off screens for, for catch and shoot threes. It's sort of like one of the principles, one of the main components of Charlotte's offense. They do really well with some of that stuff against drop, like using the center screener to have that guy screen instead of pin down for Rozier, right? Or set a flare for Rozier. And so when, when Capella's dropped into the paint and Rozier curls off that pin down, there's no natural help defender. So I think that's another area. That's another like pressure point uh, for Charlotte uh, to, to, to throw out Atlanta's defense. So again, make Trey, make Trey guard. Um, have LaBelle has got a big game in the pick and roll bridges and PJ aggressive as, uh, as matchup beaters. When those guys get mismatches and cross matches, and then Tara Rozier having a big day as, as a movement guy and, and someone that can maybe get clean looks, especially when you're able to use Plumlee or Harrell versus Capella as off-ball screeners. That was the next point that I was going to bring up about attacking Trey Young on switches. I think that's a question that Borrego has to be asking himself is, can they try to force some switches with Trey Young as a defender? And, you know, you, you focus on him when the Hornets are on defense, but you've also got to focus on him when the Hornets have the ball. They do not have Hayward, like we mentioned prior, but to Lee's point, to Brian's point, Miles Bridges has an opportunity to have a big game Wednesday night if he can handle the ball and then use LaMelo as a screener or use whoever is guarding or whoever Trey Young is guarding as that screener. And it's going to put him in a tough position, especially if they can set a very good screen. I do want to mention one player that I think 
you know, not, not that if he has a bad game that the Hornets automatically lose, but I feel like if Mason Plumley has a good game against the Hawks, like this is the, the one player that I want to like denote as a key player for the Hornets on Wednesday, he's going to be asked to do a lot in this game. And there's certain aspects of this matchup that he needs to get right. Number one, he's got to be aggressive on those pick and roll traps. But we have seen this year where he gets over aggressive and he tries to make a steal or he tries to get up down the court where he takes himself out of the play. So he's got to be assertive, but not overly aggressive in that. Number two, I wrote down that he's got to create extra possessions on the offensive glass. I think that's something that he's done a very good job of this year in terms of just kind of like those back tap rebounds that he has. And the Hawks, like the Hornets, as Lee were mentioning, not a very good defensive rebounding team, and Plumlee can take advantage of that. And then lastly for Plumlee, number three, on the opposite end of the boards, he's got to keep Capella off the offensive glass. I know... Good luck, Mason. Yeah, well, I know I know Capella's going to get his. I know Capella's yeah. going to get his. But Mason has shown to me that he can be physical down there. If he can hold him to four offensive rebounds or less, I know that I think that might even be over his average just a tad. I, I still would take that. I would take that. And with Hornets being a bottom five defensive rebounding team, that is something that typically doesn't bode well if the other team gets forces turnovers, but also gets on the offensive glass. So I think Mason Plumlee, if he has a good game on Wednesday night, it's going to put the Hornets in a good position. Yeah, I'm I'm with you guys there. I think, I mean, this is something that's always the case, but it kind of feels a bit more important, particularly in this Atlanta matchup, uh, closing games out with PJ at the five. Like, obviously this is... You know, this is the ace in the hole that we're, you know, like, it's no secret. Everybody knows it. We've got two full years of solid data on the fact that PJ at the five lineups are Charlotte's most successful lineups, most efficient lineups. The interesting thing will be is, like, how how does this game start? There Obviously, there's a multitude of different scenarios. Charlotte, you know, maybe struggling out of the gate or a hot Atlanta start. Yeah. How quickly is Borrego just kind of going to hit the the panic button and be like, <laughs> we've got to go small now. Like, I yeah. can see that happening quickly if Atlanta start, you know, and the home crowd gets going. Like, that that's his security blanket, at rightfully show, as it should be. So how willing will Borrego be to play Plumlee and Harrell? And, and how necessary might it be for him to play small the majority of this game? Um, again, that that brings issues too. But like, there have been Hawks matchups where the Hornets have played small, and the Hornets have kind of frustrated Trey Young, as we've talked about previously. And it felt like the only way the Hawks would could score was a Capella putback. Yeah. So like, there are times I think when Brego's willing to like kind of live with the fact that Capello can kind of beat them down around the rim a little bit, but that the Hawks don't get a whole lot else. And kind of likes his chances of 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 uh, the small ball Hornets like popping around a fishing offense, confusing the Hawks enough to kind of win that seesaw battle. Um, so that there's just a lot of like interesting chess back and forth here yeah. with the Hawks and Hornets. And yeah, so so that was my main thing, and it was kind of like I guess my kind of like key thing to watch, key player to watch. And 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 obviously, like both of these teams are very capable of having one night where they just completely shoot the cover off the ball. So like those are two other kind of like not off the wall because they both do it quite frequently, but either one of these teams could make 18 threes Wednesday night and, and run the other team out of the gym. Like that could also happen. Yeah. I mean, these are two of the best basketball offenses in the world, right? couple of quick things I want to mention, just touching on this game, Lee, you, you brought up them going small I kind of like that that look for Charlotte, A, because Capella is going to do his damage no matter what. But I think you can make him pay on the other end by saying, do you want to guard Bridges or do you want to guard PJ? And then picking at that. And I think Charlotte's done a really nice job putting Clint Capella into action when they run that Spain pick and roll. It's something that's been good for them in all four games against Atlanta this season. I tweeted out a compilation video of that this year. Charlotte's probably scored – seven or eight times this season out of Spain pick and roll, usually mixing up either having PJ be the first screener who dives to the rim 
and having Bridges be the back screener who pops out or flipping those roles around, having Miles Bridges be the one that screens and dives, PJ being the one that's setting the back screen and then popping out. And depending on how you want to attack Capella, well, you can line up in that in a bunch of different ways. I like how on the flip side, what that does too is when Charlotte goes small is it means they can probably put more length on Trey Young. And I like that too. Where all of a sudden when you go small, you're probably bringing in Cody Martin or you're bringing in Jalen McDaniels. And so you're bringing in one of your better defenders. And so that's the, one of the other things is again, you've got to show trade different stuff. It can't be the same thing every, every other time. And look, he's great. Like every team wants to throw a size at Trey young. He's still going to carve him up, but I love the thought of being able to throw Jalen McDaniels and Cody Martin. I know Cody's not like a great point of attack defender. I, I kind of like Jalen at the point of attack, but if you have Jalen McDaniels, you can sw- you can switch around behind the play more, right? You can scramble, switch out easily with PJ and Miles, and again, just gives you a little bit more length at the point of attack to throw on trade. Makes those passing windows a little bit tighter. Um, so I, I, I kind of like that component of it. Two other things I would just say very quickly here about about Trey. One, another thing Charlotte had good success with against Atlanta this season outside of the spade pick and roll action was one of the things that the Hornets do a lot of is they do those those five-out Chicago actions, right, where they throw the ball to P.J. or Mason or Montrez or Bridges in the middle of the court, and then they run a pin-down screen for a guy in the corner into a dribble handoff. Whomever Trey Young is guarding, Put that, put that dude in the corner and have him run off that Chicago action. Make Trey Young guard through a pin down and a ball screen and see if he wants to actually guard that. Like, see, because, like, in the last time those two teams played, Trey had no interest in trying to fight over two screens. Now, you know, that was a regular season game in March. <laughs> this is a little bit different. But I, I would test his medal. I would do that. And I would say, how, how bad do you want it? And then also, is he, when he is guarding off the basketball, and this is really where Cody Martin – and Jalen McDaniels, I think, can shine because I think this is where either Atlanta will try to stress, like we'll try to stash Trey. They'll try to put him on Cody or they'll try to put him on Jalen. Random cuts away from the basketball. Trey's going to ball watch, mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, and then so when, when the action is tied up in the, the slot and you're in the weak side corner, cut into the paint, random cuts. Uh, Cody got a great basket the last time these two teams played where Charlotte ran Spain. The middle of the court was tied up. Then all of a sudden the lane cleared and Cody just darted in from the corner and got a bucket because Trey was a step, a step and a half behind him. So random cuts is another way to get at Trey young. And then lastly, Richie, I think Richie, you said this earlier, but it's a great point. I just want to reinforce it one last time is if, and when Trey does get off the basketball for Atlanta and it doesn't like, doesn't directly turn into a shot for the Hawks. Like, deny the basketball. Yeah. Don't, don't let him get it back. And I, look, Bogdanovich is, is good, and Hunter can play with the basketball. Like, they got, you know, Herter can give you some secondary creations, but they've got guys. But it's like, you just, you live with that. And Trey is not Steph Curry off the ball. Like, he doesn't really exactly. want to, he doesn't want to move like that off the ball, you know? Exactly. Exactly. All right, let's get to our predictions. But before that, I just want to mention this real quickly. Brian, you and I were texting about this, why the 7-8 seed has not only a home court advantage, but they also have an extra day's rest. Uh, I tweeted this out the other day about why that is. Like, I'm not advocating for the 9-10 seed to have a rest advantage. If the Hornets were to make it to the next step in the plan, they would be down one days of rest. They'll also be playing on the road. Only thing I was proposing for all four play-in games, two of them be east on one night, two of them be the west on one night. So both teams are at the same rest advantage slash disadvantage. So here's how I'm going to pose this prediction. It's either a Hawks win by six or more or a Hornets win by six or more. Or if you want to make it a close game, we'll call it five or less. So tell me who wins and then tell me if it's six or more or five or less. Lee, why don't you go, why don't you go first on, on this one here? Okay. Is that confusing? Right. So I, yeah. <laughs> uh, BG's pulling out his calculator real quick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm uh, 83 baby. <laughs> so you, I mean, you guys, I think at this point you probably know I'm, I'm somewhat of an eternal optimist. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Hornets five or less. This feels like to me like it's a down to the wire. Eric Collins losing his ever loving mind, like late Rozier heroics, 
and Charlotte comes out of there. I'm not going to give an exact score, but I'll just say five or less, but like really, really close game. Charlotte wins. Yeah, I like that. I'll go close game. Charlotte five or less too. get nail biter. Yeah. State farm rock, state farm arena rocking. Let's go. Um, and yeah, yeah. LaMelo versus Trey young, you know, like the, these two like young dynamic East coast guards going at one another. I like it. Well, I'll have to be the pessimist here. Oh, and I'm going to say, go. I'm going to say Hawks by six or more, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be a, a blowout. I think it's going to be a close game throughout very unlike last year's playing uh, against the Pacers. Yeah. I just think that maybe like some free throw shooting and some like dagger three pointers might put the Hawks ahead. So I will just go with the pessimist view. And then if the Hornets do win, I will be surprised. So edging his emotions. I like, yeah. Last thing I would say too, is just like, again, with Trey, like we've talked this season about how bad the Hornets closeouts have been when they get into rotation. Well, Trey is like the ultimate guy that can create the advantage very easily at the point of attack with a one pick and roll screen. Charlotte's closeouts, they've, got, they've just got to be better. They can't be unorganized. They can't let they can't let Atlanta get into pick and roll, trace, skip pass, and all of a sudden, one more pass later, it's a dunker, a wide open three. Like they've just got to be they've got to be locked in and, and be a little bit more disciplined. They can't let Atlanta just like build, take that initial advantage and make it far greater, right? You know, that's that's that would be the last thing I would say. I'll go with the uh, I'll go, uh, but I'm so, I'm sticking with my optimistic take though, despite all of my reservations and concerns that are mostly Trey Young related. Yeah, so we're gonna go ahead and wrap here. Go ahead and give our show a follow on Twitter at Buzzbeat Pod. Uh, be on the lookout for a Twitter Spaces recap after the game against the Hawks. Win or lose, hope to see you guys there. For Lee, for Brian, I'm Richie. Have a good one. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.